this is the practice of Anapanasati, is the practice of catching unwholesome thoughts in the mind and throwing them out and putting wholesome thoughts in the mind. Now, the wholesome thoughts that we're looking for versus unwholesome, because many students will say, okay, well, what's a wholesome thought and what's a not a wholesome thought? <laughs> That's an unwholesome thought? Yeah, what's a, well, you're sharp. <laughs> you're very sharp. Yes, yeah, so today I think it would be good to start down the path of what is corrupt practice. That mostly um, insights don't do people that much good. Okay. Because an insight is like one rub on a table. Mm -hmm. And I just, just gave the analogy of that a guy goes and buys a can of wax, mm -hmm. but he doesn't rub the table. He just goes by more wax, reads more books, and uh, studies more Dhamma, but he never gets down to rubbing it. Okay. Mm -hmm. So an insight is like one rub. <laughs> yeah. All right. And so one insight is not going to do one much good. Uh, but a lot of incremental rubbing, a lot of incremental changes is what uh, the, the practice is all about in the, in the beginning stages. In mm -hmm. other words, we've got to develop some skills. Mm -hmm. And if the student doesn't develop the skills, then their practice is sloppy. And exactly that same thing is true with uh, music in the sense of a piano player who doesn't go through the actual training that's necessary will always stay in ragtime or hinky-tinky or church music and will not graduate into the very sophisticated stuff mm -hmm. because it doesn't actually have the foundation of the fingerings and the chords and the spreads and all of this kind of stuff. Okay, and so um that's that's one of the ways of looking at it you can also see uh that that's exactly what's happening with golf golf okay okay if you know anything about golf it's all about how to get the body postures exactly correct mm -hmm. if you do a good swing you will hit a good ball is their understanding now that's interesting in the sense that it has a very, very close tie to Buddhism. And here is one of the ways that you can see that connection is Zen and the art of archery. <laughs> I, I read that book. Okay. Zen and the art of archery is all about doing it correctly. All about going through the motions and, and pinning them down over and over and over again until you get the exact procedure down correctly. Right? Mm -hmm. And uh, there's many, many exhibitions. And by the way, uh, in this uh, art, particular style of archery, there's several schools in Japan. Only two of them teach it with horses. <laughs> but they never do it in competition. It's always done as exhibition. Mm-hmm because it's not about hitting the target. If you were going to have a competition, the way that they would compete would be by who can hit the target. 
And that's not the object of the game when you add Zen to the archery. <laughs> to clean okay. yourselves. When you add the Zen to the archery, now it's all about uh, doing everything correctly up until the instant of time when the bow uh, is, uh, or the, the feather or the end of the arrow is let loose. And now the arrow is on its own to seek its own target. Mm -hmm. And all we have to do is point it in the right direction. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so you could actually see your life like that. And in fact, Gil Brand talked about that in the sense your, your children are not your own. All mm -hmm. they are like arrows that are launched. Once the arrow leaves the bow, the mm -hmm. archer has no more control over it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And so this is the way that we should begin to treat things because in that part, we're talking about in the Zen and the art of archery is, is that all the intention is paid into getting it done correctly in this moment because the arrow is going to hit the target out into the future. And we're not interested in the future. We're interested in getting things correct in this moment. All right. And this is the entire teachings of the Buddha in the sense of the teaching of the Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda actually means correct your posture mm -hmm. before you let it fly. Mm -hmm. That it's an instantaneous thing. And yet most people think uh, in Western traditions uh, and in our Western society, uh, time has become a major important thing that did not really exist in pre-dawn history. That time is an invention of man, and it's a mistaken invention. What man is actually measuring is, is distance. And Some... how it, and, and, the, and the traveling of distance mm -hmm. and the various ways that distance can be traveled. So an example of a grandfather clock is that the mm -hmm. clock is not measuring time, it's measuring the distance of the swing of the pendulum. I see, yeah. All right. And that we measure the year by the distance that the Earth travels around the sun. Nice. Okay, and because of this, Humans have gotten interested in this thing called time, which is really nothing but distance anyway. And it's become quite abstract. And so we think then uh, that something off, way off into the past and something way off into the future is important to what's happening right now. And when that becomes a very important point, then we have religions that have way far distant heavens and way far distant hells. Yeah. Can I? Um, yes. Why wouldn't you use the word change instead of distance? That's exactly right. OK. Yes, that in fact, distance is nothing but a new kind of reference around Anicca, or everything is in turmoil, everything is moving, everything is in flux, everything is in motion, 
every domino in this uh, falling over hits another domino, starting it to fall over also. And everything is a change event, cause effect, everything like that. In fact, that's an, uh, one of the most important teachings of the Buddha uh, that is referenced in two words. One is Paticca Samupada, and that actually means Paticca means uh, dependency. In other words, um, uh, Sam Upad, things don't really come into existence or they don't really arise without a cause. Mm -hmm. And then in an overall sense, the word in Pali is Itiapapajayata. And if Itiapapajayata, <laughs> 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 it's a long one. Itiapapajayata. Uh, uh, Got it. Okay. This yeah. word means with this, there is that. Without this, there is not that. Mm -hmm. And it expresses itself in the sense of uh, a fuel has to have a, uh, excuse me, a fire has to have a fuel. No fire burns without a fuel. Mm -hmm. If you look at it like that, Buddha was actually a nuclear physicist <laughs> before his time. <laughs> he was a particle physicist right before his time and he didn't even know it but this is exactly how the entire universe is set up is in this cause effect cause effect and fires have fuel yes okay and uh this is an important point because most of the magical thinking of humans is that they imagine that fires are things that exist without a cause or that a fire burns without a fuel and mm -hmm. one of the kinds of fires that burns without a fuel in the minds of human beings is things that happened long long ago or things that will happen far out into the future they really don't exist at all except <sighs> between the years and there is the only place that they have any fuel at all. What do you, can you elaborate on the last sentence? Yes. <laughs> the fuel is the thought pattern. The fuel is from the nutriment that wounds up being the food you ate two days ago is now the fuel plus the oxygen of the breathing that you're doing in the past two minutes is what's the fuel for that fire of the imagination about things that will happen way off into the future. Because the, but the future does not exist. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Except in between the years, inside the heads or the minds of human beings. That's what I don't get. Between the ears? What is between the years? Well, the imaginations about the future. So just imagining what you'll be like in two years or something. Right, exactly. Okay. Right. And so that future, that two year future of me is nothing but an imagination. Oh, I understand now. Yeah. And it doesn't exist. And what does exist at whatever time in the future is probably not what I imagined, because our human imaginations are not very good. <laughs> That's why it's better to stay with reality. 
the present moment. That's why we go back to the archery. Mm -hmm. Is in the sense of let's get this moment correct. And if we get this moment correct, then the next moment will take care of itself. And when that moment arrives now, let's do that moment correctly. And when the next moment arrives, we're going to do that one correctly. And now we've got a pattern going and that pattern develops confidence that we can actually keep this pattern going. Okay. And for the Zen archer, that means walking out on the stage, kneeling in the proper way, uh, reaching and grasping the arrow out of the quiver exactly correctly while he's bringing the bow into a certain position so that as he's launching the arrow, he's pulling it back and immediately lets it fly. Why? Because if you hold the arrows like this, the way that they do with the big, heavy, strong English bows, mm -hmm. the letting go is not accurate. So the Japanese use their fingers like this, which means you don't have very much strength. So as soon as you draw the bow out, and by the way, that's a different one. Instead of holding the bow out and drawing the arrow, because that's a lot of work for those little two fingers, what the mm -hmm. Japanese do is put the bow up, hold the arrow here, and then push the bow out, and then let it fly. You see that whole sequence of events, every one of them has to be done exactly correctly, or the arrow will miss its target. But then the rest of the show is, is to stand up and to turn to your, uh, your head to the right and to walk off the stage while the arrow is still in flight because the job now has been done or the job of leaving the stage is the last part of the job, not being <laughs> anticipation of where the arrow is going. Yeah. That's when the golf and, the, and Zen and the art of archery diverge. Up until that point, golf is exactly that way. You have to be careful of how you're swinging because all those little intricacies about where your arms are and how you're holding the club and where your fingers are and exactly how the swing is going, all of that affects the ball. But when you hit the ball? But once you hit the ball, it's in the air. You can't do nothing about it now. It's gone. <laughs> The only thing you can do is to put your club back into the bag. Because you're done. That's about the only thing you can do while that ball's in the air. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So if we can get to this position of understanding that everything that we're talking about with Anapanasati has to do with this particular instant of time. Mm -hmm. Then we can begin to develop the skills that we need moment by moment all right and mm -hmm. so this is basically then the beginning of the teaching of the buddha starting with that the whole teaching is dukkha dukkha naroda and that the way that the westerners hear that is they hear a dukkha 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 for a couple <laughs> of years i'm getting there closer i'm going to look at it and i'll have some dukkha some more but eventually <laughs> i want to have some insight someday you know yeah. And that's the way that we see it. The <laughs> right way to see Dukkha Dukkha Naroda is right here in this moment. Let's put it out. Let's, <laughs> let's put Dukkha out of my misery right now. 
And if I can get good at doing that, then I can do it again and I can do it again and I can do it again. That mm-hmm. it's not like uh, the situation of uh, they, they call it no pain, no gain. Mm-hmm. In other words, you have to suffer for a long time and then you get your reward. You got to you got to uh, crawl on your knees and, and bow and scrape and put money in that box for years and years and years. And then when you die, now you can get your reward. OK, or uh, the other one, uh, which is kind of common among many Westerners now, is the issue about celibacy. I got to work and I've got to strive and I've got to build up all that spiritual energy. And look how many celibate uh, priests there are over many centuries in the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. And about the only thing that they've ever been able to come up with in Sardis Power is uh, pornographic child molestation and prostate cancer. <laughs> very rarely hear of stories of the priest flying around in, in, in magical um, uh, style above their congregation just to prove the power of God. <laughs> well, they don't do that. Why? Because those kind of powers are like the, uh, the heavens that are way off into the future. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so people will practice things like celibacy for long, many, many years and struggle and suffer and give themselves prostate cancer or an occasional altar boy, and they never quite ever get that magical power <laughs> that uh, is promised, especially in the Hindu. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But nobody ever gets that magical power, but every generation you'll have guys lusting after that power and women put themselves through enormous suffering in order to get something that they don't even know what it is. <laughs> so. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, sure. Um, is Buddhism, was the Buddha at all influenced by Hinduism or is that just a... Well, of the word Hinduism mm-hmm. didn't even come into existence until about 15, 1600. That was a word that the uh, the British gave to what they found when they got there. I see. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in that way, we have to look at it in the sense of was Buddha um, influenced by Brahmanism of the day? Okay. The answer is completely, definitely, so. <laughs> absolutely. It's chakra. Those sutras are chakra block full of it all. That in fact, there's so much of it there that people get confused between what is the of uh, what is the real Buddhism or the teaching of the Buddha versus what is the environment that lived in the Brahmanism. Okay. So the, in fact, the Brahmanism was one was a group that was teaching about time. And the Buddha was saying, no, the issue is about this very moment. This is when we suffer. We don't suffer in the future. Mm-hmm. We suffer right now. We feel bad now. <clears throat> and so this is where uh, the development of the, um, the practice came from. Um, but let me give you the, the, the overarching context, the overarching uh, context. Can you, can you increase your volume or something? Or I don't know. Pardon? 
You're a little quiet, but I don't know if that's because of something that I the did. Internet. Or... Yes, no, the internet. Let it, let it skip like that. Okay, and it came back fairly quickly. Sometimes it takes a long time, but yeah, that's, I think it's Skype. I think it's not the internet itself. I think it's the way that the software works. But in any case, back to where we were talking about, um, the details that we're about to discuss in a few minutes have an overarching context, and that overarching context is the what's called the Four Noble Truths. That Four Noble Truths actually predated the Buddha. That he he borrowed that from Ayurvedic medicine, and that it has to do with the disease, the cause of the disease, the cure of the disease, and the medicine for the cure of the disease. Interesting. And he knows about that. I mean, this is just uh, a well-known part of it. What he actually, he's actually very clear about the things that he did that added ingredients. It's almost like, uh, imagine that you had a wall clock, like a, a grandfather clock or a freestanding clock that didn't function at all. And people had been tinkering with that thing for hundreds of years. And finally, you get some kid that goes in there and he finds one little thing in there and he says, that's what it is. We got to fix that. And as soon as he put that particular thing in there, which would probably be the clicker or the thing that, that hits that wheel, mm-hmm. and then he can get the clock going. And everybody stands around how marvelous he is and give him credit for the whole <laughs> clock. I see. And so, which is the Buddha? Is the Buddha the kid that figured out that little clip? <laughs> is Buddha the guy who invented the clock? Because the Buddha says, oh, no, this is an old method. So he's the guy who did the clicker. Mm-hmm. All he did was figure out the clicker. What is the clicker? It's the, this moment. This, this particular moment is the clicker. So the Brahmanism didn't focus he, on the best moment? Not at all. They, they, the Brahmins themselves focused on keeping power. Oh, I see. And the way that they were going to keep power was because of uh, uh, being able to prove that their heretical strain, their uh, clan, was the right clan to do all the things that Brahmins claimed that only Brahmins could do that made them so wealthy that in fact there's at least two points in Indian history where the Brahmins owned all the land. They're still very good at it of getting land. Brahmanism is Brahmin the same as the caste, the highest caste in the caste. Right. That that is that's the clan. Mm-hmm. And it's grown and grown and grown wealthy by doing things most actually now most brahmins are not priests but in the time of the buddha all the brahmins were priests and teachers and managers of their religion but right now in varanasi you still have the rivers ganges and the burning hats and all of that and for the rich men from across India to get actually have their body burned in the Gan- at Ganges and their ashes thrown in the river may cost them 20 acres or 100 acres of land. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, so that's how the land, in fact, uh, I don't want to go into too much history. It's very beautiful. 
let's get back to the Eightfold Noble Path and most specifically the medicine itself are a set of skills that need to be learned. The first skill, the overarching skill, is one's right view. Now, we you actually the poly word is ditty, but the what we mean by view is basically viewpoint that people take. In other words, we establish a position and we see the world from that position. So if you are in a particular religion, then that religion will cover by uh, by blinding you to everything else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so uh, the whole quality of when the view gets noble, the viewpoint starts to shift so that you can get a panoramic view of things. Mm -hmm. Not only do you have this camera being able to see in 360 degrees, you kind of like put the camera on a drone and let it take flight so that you can get more understanding of what's really going on. This noble kind of view can uh, sometimes be referred to as, as clairvoyance. <laughs> because when you're really open and see what's going on and um, everybody else is narrow-minded. <laughs> looks like you see the future for some uh, other places. I'll say, all right, so you're getting what we mean now by one's right view. Mm -hmm. Right view then is um, uh, it comes first, but the second one, right sati, is the most important one to develop as a skill. This is the one to re basically what it means is to remember to rub that table. Ah. To remember to rub it. If you don't remember to rub it, you're not going to rub that table. Mm -hmm. Okay. The third I and okay, so let's put it in with that analogy then recognizing that this table can be improved. The inspection of the table, let us say that you went to a, um, uh, a flea market or something and you saw this table and you inspected it with knowledge and you knew that this table was valuable and so you bought it for a dollar and took it home and spent three dollars on a can of wax. <laughs> and now you, when you finish polishing that table, it's going to be worth a fortune. You see, this is the kind uh -huh. of idea that we're talking about is, is that one's right view is, is that you can see a diamond in the rough. You can see the value in something and you can see what other things have no value. So now we've got the table home. We have to remember that we've got to rub this table. Mm -hmm. in order to get the wax into it so that it's worthwhile having. And so that's where the rubbing comes in. Now, the rubbing is, in fact, what we mean by one's right effort. Mm -hmm. uh, this is, this mm -hmm. is easy to understand. This is the Eightfold Noble Path we're talking about here. We have to put the effort in to rub the table. We have to actually put some skin in the game. We got to actually take the time and effort to rub the table. Let's put that back into the analogy now of what we mean by this and, and start looking at it from meditation. All right. So the meditation then or Anapanasati is we're going to apply one's right view in the sense of knowing what is right view and what is not right view. What is wholesome and not wholesome what's worthy of our time and attention, what's not worthy of our time and attention, 
right now. The second one is sati, to remember to do this, to remember to seek quality. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then we add the effort that it takes to actually apply that so that we begin to change our views from unwholesome views to wholesome views. But we also begin to do it moment by moment in the sense of changing unwholesome thoughts to wholesome thoughts. This is the entire teaching of the Buddha in that particular place. And not only that, but it is in so many suttas. One way of looking at suttas, and and many people do it, in fact, I've got a friend who really wants to get uh, the commentaries and many other things translated because they've never been translated before. That's his attitude, but it's very dense, very complex. (laughs) My attitude is we need to do a really, really good job of redoing the easy ones and Uh begin to put them together with synthesis so that we know that the teaching in 117 with one's right effort to change the mind to wholesome thoughts is exactly sutta number 19 and the... um, the cowherd. In fact, the rubbing of the table is very similar to the cowherd, which we'll talk about. And then there's other suttas, number 20, exactly how to do this. And then in sutta number 118, the Anapanasati sutta, they use it in, in the reference of gladdening the mind, of changing the mind from unwholesome to wholesome. Uh, it's also done in Sutta number two, number uh, 10, and various other suttas. There's always this thread pointing back to that the number one primary practice for the beginner is learn to have wholesome thoughts and yes. to remove unwholesome thoughts from the mind until they begin to have one wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought. Now, we do this in combination with the breathing because the breathing is actually a good solid anchor for it. As well as last time that we talked, we really did talk about the breathing. (laughs) Okay. And the effort that it takes Mm -hmm. to do that. It takes effort. This is one's right effort in the Eightfold Noble Path, but one's right effort is also to breathe with the mind as well as the body in the sense of uh, uh, breathing in good, wholesome thoughts and breathing out or exhausting unwholesome thoughts. Can you visualize that? Yes, you can visualize that. You can also have it in the form of a mantra in the sense of as I breathe in, I breathe in joy. And as I relax, as I breathe out, I relax, I relax, relax. And as I breathe in, I breathe in happiness and joy. And as I breathe out, I just let it all go. Okay, so these are all wholesome thoughts, one after another after another. Thoughts like everything's going to be all right, everything's fine, no worries. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the Zen context, it would be no place to go and nothing to do. And the spring comes and the grass goes by itself. (laughs) And so Buddhism has a real quality of relaxation and that relation, relaxation is similar to the relaxation 
that we allow ourselves after we have a job well done. Okay. Mm-hmm. After we have a job well done, let's say that the cotton picker is out in the fields and then somebody does the yell or, or something like that, the sun's coming down. Generally, one of the things that the cotton pickers do is that in, instead of picking up that bag of cotton and walking home or whatever, they actually sit out on the bag. <laughs> yes. Okay. When a football star uh, has a, a goal, when he when he has a touchdown, there are several things that happen immediately within the 10 seconds. He has a celebration. His hands are in the air and, and all of that. That exhilaration is very much like what the Buddha calls pity. It's exuberance. It's wow, this is so great. But then after that is followed by relaxation. Glad that's over. Got that one. Right. And so this is the kind of feelings and experiences that we're beginning to generate because we've been able to do something that very, very few people ever think about doing. There are many people who want to go for football. There are many people who win gold medals in uh, the Olympics. There are many people who climb out Mount Everest mm-hmm. and feel exhilarated because they've gotten to the top. Mm-hmm. But he- but El Mount Everest, you better do it in the morning because you need all afternoon to get off that place. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still being on top of the world. It literally is, and it's so exhilarating. And this is the point is, is that so many people have died trying to get on top of Mount Everest, but so few have actually made it. Is the way that we want to look at it. So few people have also conquered and and climbed the even higher mountain of their own mind. Mm-hmm. And here you're practicing doing that one wholesome step at a time. Basically means one step at a time climbing up the hill, as opposed mm-hmm. to the unwholesome thoughts or the unwholesome thoughts keep <laughs> rolling you back down the hill. Mm-hmm. And so we know that we're going to make it to the top of that hill. In fact, we just did it. This step is a win. This step is a win. This step, in fact, if I clean out my mind right now, I'm on top of that mountain. <laughs> okay. I'm on top of the mountain right now because I've got wholesome thoughts in my mind, which means that I can control the mind and I'm actually on top of it. Okay, so um, another analogy to use, and, and this one's cute. This one I got also from a student. He says that everyone is an emperor of their own pile of dirt. Mm-hmm. Now think about that. Everyone's an emperor of their own pile of dirt, and yet most people are kind of buried under their own pile of dirt. <laughs> are sitting on top of their own world. Okay. So the question is, is can you spend at least right now on top of the world? Can you spend right now on top of the world? You see how that works? It's not can you climb and climb and climb until eventually you get on top of the world? Can you get on top of it right now? Can you actually put thoughts in the mind right now? This is the practice of Anapanasati, is the practice of catching unwholesome thoughts in the mind and throwing them out 
and putting wholesome thoughts in the mind. Now, the wholesome thoughts that we're looking for versus unwholesome, because many students will say, okay, well, what's a wholesome thought and what's a not a wholesome thought? <laughs> That's unwholesome thought? Yeah, what's a, well, you're sharp. <laughs> you're very sharp. You've been studying philosophy, I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's go through that now. What's an unwholesome thought is a sliding scale. In the beginning, when our wisdom and our uh, right view is, is weak and unstable, we will see things and consider them okay and uh, wholesome. But later, when our mind is sharper and more focused and more clear, we'll begin to say, oh, but that thought is as much gratification as it has. It's got dangers built in and therefore is not quite as wholesome. Mm -hmm. And so let's go for only wholesome thoughts. And when we begin to see our wholesome thoughts actually have barbs, <laughs> <laughs> then we can begin to toss those. And so what happens is, is that our scale begins to slide towards the more and more wholesome, and we get actually quite expert and skilled in detecting what is wholesome and what is not wholesome. Mm -hmm. So in the beginning, what we want to do is kind of work with the wholesome that we know for sure that this is wholesome. Yes. Mm -hmm. All right. And so the kind of thoughts that might not be wholesome, maybe so, but more than likely, uh, they can be problematic, and that is thoughts of the past, thoughts of the future, thoughts of doing a job that we're actually not doing. <laughs> An example of that would be thoughts of going to the bank. I've got to go to the bank. i got to get all of those papers together. Maybe it's for a mortgage or whatever big business. I mean, when people, nowadays, people do banking online. So when you go to the bank, it's a big deal. And we make it a big deal because we go to the bank a half a dozen times the day before we go to the bank. <laughs> and we keep thinking about the bank and thinking about it and thinking about it. Those are all just unwholesome thoughts. But we keep having those thoughts over and over again, reviewing it, thinking, oh, maybe I've missed something. Am I sure I got it all? Well, maybe, maybe like Santa Claus, you need to keep a list and check it twice. But once you've checked it twice and you know it's right, you have to know that that bank is ready to go and I'm not ready to go there. Let's stop thinking about it, stop pondering over it, stop worrying about it, and put it out of the mind. Well, guess what? We begin to do that with almost all of our problems. We're not actually solving that problem, then there's no reason to ruminate over it. You just simply say out of here. I'm having too much fun right now. Don't <laughs> don't worry me with tomorrow's problems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is what we mean by wholesome thoughts, that we can begin to have wholesome thoughts. And so that means that we can guarantee ourselves that are wholesome thoughts if the thoughts are about what's happening right now, especially in the sense of our senses. In other words, if we are in sensory input and 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 observing and watching and listening and, and experiencing and touching and feeling, 
while we're doing all of that, we don't have a whole lot of time to do a lot of thinking. <laughs> and so spending time in the senses mm-hmm. is something that's quite useful. All right. So uh, but you say, well, wait a minute. I thought about the meditators and they're off in that big meditation hall and everybody's got their eyes closed and everybody's quiet. What do you mean get into your senses? Well, <laughs> now there's that one group of senses that we don't spend much time even considering. And that is the sense of touch and the sense of being and the sense of it's actually called proprioceptic. You know what I mean by the word proprioceptic? Okay. The example then would be that you know right now without looking down exactly where your feet are. You know exactly what that you are nodding your head and you don't have to look in a mirror to see that you're nodding your head. As soon as I bring it to your attention, you say, yep, I know it's nodding. How do you know it's nodding? When you pay attention to it, how do you know it's doing what it's doing is because we have this sensory system called proprioceptic. It's almost like a deep kind of touch. Mm. Okay, a deep kind of touch, and we don't pay much attention to it. The people who do pay attention to it, surprisingly enough, the very few individuals wind up being quite stars, like dancers. Mm. Or uh, athletes, those mm-hmm. kind of because they're really paying attention to what their body is doing. Zen and the art of archery is also paying very close attention to what the body is doing. And by the way, so is golf. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So mm-hmm. we're going to sit here and we're going to start paying attention to what the body's doing as we're breathing in and breathing out. And that's actually very wholesome. If you don't breathe, it's not too wholesome. If you breathe very shallowly, it's it's more wholesome, but not as wholesome as or not as unwholesome as not breathing. But breathing well, breathing in, uh, let us say, wealthy. Breathe as if you were on an oxygen mask. As if means that you've got a rich supply. Mm-hmm. That you're, the air that you breathe is rich. And it's wholesome and it's valuable. It's life giving. We've known that centuries. I feel so good to be alive. Okay, so paying attention to the breathing and paying attention what do what it does to the body is very wholesome thing to do. Another thing to do with that is in these moment by moment things that we're doing we begin to pay attention to other wholesome things that are associated with that. An example would be you begin to notice that you actually feel good. You begin to notice and begin to tell yourself and talk to yourself about that right now I actually am not afraid, that I'm actually fearless right now. I feel safe and secure and calm. And then we note that, yes, and I feel uh, satisfied. And then we begin to recognize, wait a minute, I don't rare, I rarely feel satisfied, and yet right now I can feel satisfied. That's like a major win right there, getting ourselves into a state of satisfaction that everything right now is okay. 
this is a very wholesome state to be in, and the state of dukkha is actually the state of being not satisfied, and we spend so much time being not satisfied. Okay. Another way that we can talk, uh, think about this in the sense of the wholesome is the kind of talking that we're going to be doing is not talking about how things ought to be or should be or can be or might be, but rather talking about how things are mm-hmm. right now. Okay, and in that ought to be, should be, can be, that would be like, uh, the sense of developing joy. Many students will say, well, this is joy, but I want more. This is kind of fake. It's kind of artificial. I really would like to have more joy than this. Those thoughts are completely unwholesome. They're judgment thoughts. And that we can begin to talk about it in the sense of critical thinking. Critical thinking actually is what built our society. What is the critical thinking? Well, a village is fine, but a sky rise is better. <laughs> Every build a sky rise. You know, I'll be very proud if I own a sky uh, 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 a big, tall building. Put my name on it. <laughs> and so this is where critical thinking comes from. This is better than that. I like this. I don't like that. Well, if we look at what we're talking about within critical thinking is exactly what we were meaning when we were talking about the second noble truth of I like this and I don't like that. Mm -hmm. Right view. Right. So critical thinking is, in fact, that which creates dukkha. Especially when we turn that criticism on to the inside and start criticizing ourselves. And so what we need to do then is to have wholesome thoughts that are not critical, that in fact they're nurturing thoughts. Nurturing thoughts like this is good, this is nice, everything's okay, this present moment is wonderful. We can sing little songs like zippity-doo-dah, zippity-ay, my oh my, what a wonderful day. And if we really start to feel good, then we can do the James Brown meditation. <laughs> Which is? You know that one? The song? I feel good! <laughs> like I know I would now. <laughs> I think I've heard it before. Yes, okay. So this is the way that we want to feel. We want to allow ourselves to feel really good, to feel really positive, to feel really wholesome. That everything in this present moment is okay. There's no problems, no work to do, no place to go. Everything is okay. The work that needed to be done has been done. This is the mindset to develop. One wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought. Mm-hmm. This is the way to start practicing. Okay, so this is the Anapanasati. It's that wake up to remember. And so we use the breath to remember. We use the breath just the way that you would have a piano, uh, a piano teacher would have a piano student practice fingering by playing scales. Okay, to remember that the thumb goes 
there under these fingers before you move it off. That's the way that you can go up a scale is by you start one, two, three, but you don't go further than that. You move the thumb under and then you go over like that. Okay. And so this, and so uh, we have to learn little techniques like that. And so the technique with this is to remember that this is a long in-breath and to remember that this is a long out-breath. That means that every in-breath and every out-breath, we have to remember it. This is sati, building sati, 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 to remember, to remember, to remember. Because while we remember to do the breathing, we can also remember that we have to remember to do the breathing, which means that we're watching the, the mind work. And so the mind is controlling the breathing. And so you're beginning to control the mind and the mind is controlling the breathing. And when we're doing that, we begin to add these wholesome thoughts. So that the thoughts that we're thinking about the breathing have to do with the breathing. It's very much like putting skin in the game or like the polish that table that has to be rubbed. You have to rub this stuff in over and over and over and over again. Everything's okay. Everything's fine. No worries. This is a nice breath. <gasps> Feels so good coming in, coming out. And so we begin to limit where the mind goes. We don't allow it just to go flutter all over the place. We keep it in this very wholesome little group of places. Where we're watching what's going on, we're making sure that all of our thoughts are, are wholesome. We don't allow the mind to go off into the past or into the future or off into the next town or down to the, to the store or even next door to see the girl. Just stay here with what's happening right here, right now. Mm -hmm. And this is the way that we start to practice wholesomely. And we begin to develop the jhana factors immediately by doing that. That in fact, that exuberance of knowing that we can do this over and over and over again. First jhana. That begins to develop. Yeah, as soon as you know that you can begin to control your mind, that you can have wholesome thoughts, then you keep practicing that. And pretty soon with that repetition, you begin to develop the attitude. Rubbing is not so hard. <laughs> I can do this. And look at how nice this part of the table already looks. <laughs> okay. And so you begin to take pleasure in the rubbing, or we change our attitude from being a victim into being a winner. I can do this. Rather than, oh no, look at all that hard work needs to be done to get that table in shape. Now we have the attitude of, look how nice this is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can get this one done. This is a piece of cake. I can do this. And so we begin to develop the attitude, Samasankapa, which is part of the Eightfold Noble Path. When you have right attitude and right sati and right effort and right view built in together, the mind becomes unified and whole and noble in that moment. And so now we need to practice two things. One, practice getting the mind into that state easily, quickly, and happily. And then the second skill is to maintain that, to keep it going. That's able to sustain the mind, to keep the mind wholesome, to be on guard, to make sure no unwholesome thoughts come back in. Mm -hmm. 
okay? So this is the basic practice of Anapanasati. We use the breath to, uh, uh, to control the mind. We use the mind to control the thoughts. We use the thought control to begin to control our feelings so that we begin to feel the way that we're talking. We talk ourselves literally into feeling good. So you've been spending your whole life in the habit of rubbing it hard with the knife, talking yourself into feeling bad. Over and over and over again, we've been whacking at it with that, that critical mind, hacking on that table. <laughs> and now it's time to rub it. Now it's time to smooth it. Now is the time to nurture the table instead of whacking on it. And so any thoughts of uh, you're not doing it right or this is not good enough or I've got some place to go or things to do or my leg hurts or any of that kind of stuff is to be thrown out. Adjust your posture so that the posture and the body is comfortable. And comfortable? Yeah, right. We want to be comfortable. So it is. The Buddha was was about comfort. I we'll we'll talk about sitting postures that for uh, Westerners are uncomfortable later. For the Thai people, those postures are the best posture there is when you're sitting down on the ground or on the floor. Westerners sit in furniture. They don't know how to sit out on the ground or on the floor. They were taken off the ground when they were toddlers, put in a high chair. <laughs> they go to school. They sit on the uh, in a little chair. When the Thai kids go to school, they sit on the floor. Mm-hmm. So, when they when the Thai families eat, they eat sitting on the floor. Mm-hmm. And so, sitting on the floor is comfortable for hundreds of billions of people. But it's also uncomfortable for hundreds of billions of people. So, but. But the trick is, is yes, you want the body to be comfortable because if the body is uncomfortable, the mind is distracted into the discomfort, having discomfortable thoughts. Thoughts of I don't like this, thoughts of I want to do something about it. Mm -hmm. But in the beginning stages of, of practice, the mind is too tender to be able to tough it out easily. Like, ha, the, the leg hurts. So what? My mind is stronger than that leg. See, they're not ready for that kind of position yet. So you want to make sure that the body is comfortable so that you get the mind strong. And when the mind is strong, and yeah, well, it was just a leg. Never mind. <laughs> you get comfortable so that you don't care about if you're comfortable or not. Well, you get comfortable so that you can develop the skills you need. Mm. So that you can deal with discomfort easily. Uh, I see, I see. <laughs> okay. It's like when you first go to the gym, they set the situation up so that you can easily manage the weights. So the beginner does not go and put together a dumbbell or a barbell that's got 400 kilos on it. But that's what we want to do, and so that's what we think about doing. We start. We think about let's go get that four hundred pound barbell in the mind, and we can't lift it. We cannot lift that pain in the leg. We're not. The mind's not strong enough. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. We need to practice on the things that we can win, and so j- let's work on getting the body comfortable, 
so that we can work on getting little uncomfortable mental thoughts out of the mind. Mm -hmm. I just made myself worse. <laughs> okay, so I think that we've got the kind of the basics down. You mm -hmm. get comfortable. You watch the breathing in and out and in and out and tell yourself a little story about how nice it is to sit here with nothing to do and no place to go and everything is easy peasy and wow, I feel good. And we start practicing this over and over again. We take some wax and start rubbing it in. We take some joy and we start applying it to the mind. <laughs> mm -hmm. This is the right way to start to practice. And if you can develop those skills of keeping the mind wholesome, then we can get the mind completely pure. <laughs> In other words, wholesomeness are, uh, is about the only thing that we're, we can think because we've removed all of the sources for the unwholesome stuff. I see. The table waxes itself. No, 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 it's like once we wax the table, we only have to now touch it up once a week or so. Ah, I see. And you never get to a point where you stop. You always need to make sure that it's uh, waxed, not make sure, uh, see if it's waxed. Always an investigation is needed things keep changing but the investigation is dead easy because you're an expert at it and there's not much to look at anymore <laughs> so you've got both sides of that covered so life becomes easy peasy but you still have to watch what's going on and I'd assume that you already figured it all out because <laughs> it changed. It, it, it's not here yet. <laughs> you don't know what the future holds. Uh, not what the future holds. We do not know what the future will bring. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, let's finish now. And uh, uh, you go practice this. I would recommend that you would practice it several times a day. For short periods, a lot of people think meditation is, oh, you got to sit a long time, and then the better you are, the longer you sit. No, we need to get this going for moment by moment by moment, and all day, uh, any time that you can think about it. And so breaking it up to six times for 10 minutes, again, much better. And when you close your eyes, if you want to, I guess. You don't even need to close your eyes after a while. Mm -hmm. But if you want to, close them. If you want to, exactly. Okay. Or if they feel like that they close naturally themselves, that's okay too. Mm -hmm. Everything is around getting yourself completely comfortable. I, so I should close my eyes right now if I want to. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see you again. <laughs> Bye. Thank okay. you.